Welcome to the Nonline Podcast. This episode, we return to Indonesia to discuss the presidency of Joko Widodo as he consolidates his position as perhaps Indonesia's strongest president of the post-Sahato era. How did Jokowi get to this commanding position and how might he seek to maintain it as Indonesia's political elite prepare their game plans ahead of the 2024 presidential election? We take up these questions with Marcus Mitzner, someone with a rare grasp of the machinations in Jakarta. Marcus Mitzner is Associate Professor at the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, where he's writing a book on the Indonesian presidency. The audio quality fades somewhat on the camera side, but this is the best update you'll hear right now on the Indonesian political scene. I'm Quinton Tembi, as always, joined by Made Supriyatma. Let's get into it. Yeah, unless, Made, you wanted to start with a question, I was thinking of starting by asking Marcus about his, the recent seminar he gave which was titled Coercive Power Sharing and was talking about Jokowi and the recent machinations with the Democrat Party. And really to ask, what does that term coercive power sharing mean and why have you used it uh, in this case to talk about the current political situation in Indonesia? Okay, so if we talk about... uh, coalition building in Indonesia, we normally uh, focus on the large size of those coalitions traditionally. You know, Indonesian presidents have always, since Sahara's downfall, built coalitions that um, assemble more than 50% of the seats in parliament. So we talk about rainbow coalitions and so forth. And so far, there have been all kinds of terms used for that practice and the way that these coalitions are brought together. And one of these approaches has been to talk about uh, promiscuous power sharing. That's a concept developed by then Slater, 2018, uh, in which parties almost naturally uh, try to become part of the government. So presidents win elections and after Uh, they do so, parties come to them and ask for government participation. And therefore, under Yudhoyono, for instance, between 2004 and 2014, we've seen these very big coalitions um, that usually consisted of about 75% of parliament uh, seats, so parties that represent 75% of the uh, uh, parliament seats. So that's a pretty uh, common phenomenon we see in other parts of the world as well, like in the Philippines, when a Philippine president wins elections, um, those parties that lost the elections will then join uh, the government. So something quite similar we've seen uh, in Indonesia. However, under Jokowi, we see this sort of similar coalition sizes, but the ways, the mechanics through which they're being put together is now quite different. And that's what I have described as coercive uh, power sharing. So 
under Jokowi, and this was the first time uh, visible with Golkar and Petiga, so Golkar, the former government party under Sarato, and Petiga, an Islamic party, which after Jokowi came to power in 2014 was still part of the opposition. And Jokowi had defeated Prabowo, um, his rival, in the 2014 elections, but Prabowo's coalition held the majority of seats in parliament. Jokowi started out with only a minority coalition of 37% of the seats, roughly, in parliament. And the way that Jokowi got Golkar and Petiga to join the government was no longer just by offering rewards, offering resources, patronage, and so forth, but by actually intervening into the internal affairs of those parties. In both cases, we saw pro-Jokowi factions running counter-congresses against the uh, incumbent leadership of both parties. The government, because it holds the legal authority to acknowledge the legality of party leadership boards, acknowledged um, those pro-Jokowi factions as the legal representation of those parties, and therefore created, in a way, uh, their own loyalist parties. So Golkar and Petiga then flipped from the opposition into government, joined the Jokowi coalition, and brought uh, Jokowi from a minority position of 37% in parliament to 70% uh, just through these kinds of machinations. So that's what I'm describing as coercive power uh, sharing, where it's no longer about this natural drive of parties towards participation in government, but where actually unwilling opposition parties are forced by the president through internal interventions using this legal mechanism that is at the hands of the executive in order to flip uh, opposition parties. That's essentially what this concept describes. Is it unfair to suggest there's something rather Sahato-esque about that in the sense that of Sahato's uh, modus operandi of incorporating different political parties and different aspects of the opposition coalition uh, uh, co- opposition constellation into into corporatist bodies into into larger holes. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I think it's important to state from the beginning that the new order obviously was a very different political animal. Uh, there's no point in talking about coalitions, presidential coalitions under the Suharto era. However, there's part of this legacy here. Uh, embodied in this executive authority to recognize the legality of party leadership boards. That is something that was transferred from the Suharto era into the post-authoritarian period. Uh, I don't think, for instance, uh, that this power to recognize the legality of leadership boards belongs to the executive, especially not to the Ministry of Justice and Human Rights, which is uh, in most cases headed by a political party cadre, like in this case, uh, Yasona, who is a PDIP cadre, not only cadre, but actually a member of the leadership board of PDIP, who then suddenly holds the authority to decide over internal leadership disputes in other parties. That should not be the case. That kind of authority should be given to uh, a more neutral institution, like, for instance, um, the Electoral Commission, the, the KPU. So 
Yes, Sohato had used this sort of authority, not so much for coalition building, but you know, there was one very famous case in 1996, 1997, where he uh, pushed the uh, leadership of PDI at the time under Megawati Sukarnoputri aside and replaced uh, her with a loyalist. And then that party under Sahata loyalist competed in the 1997 elections. That is what the legacy uh, is is about. But Sahata obviously was under no, you know, pressure to build coalitions. So it's a slightly different different way in which uh, this legal instrument is being used. But as we stand today, uh, the minister or the ministry at least has not agreed to sign off on that, uh, you know, Madoko uh, Jokowi's chief of staff's takeover of the Democrat Party. So does that mean the rule of law is holding here, in this case at least in Indonesia, or would you be less uh, sanguine? And that's the way the government would want to present it, right? So the fact that the government eventually decided not to acknowledge um, the Moldova Leadership Board, um, that that proves that it is neutral and so forth. I, I have a slightly different view of why the government clearly began this process that uh, mirrored the one they used for Golkar and uh, Petika and didn't finish through with it. There are several, several reasons for that. Number one, um, there was from the uh, SPY side, the Udiono side, and his son, who is now the uh, chairman of Partido Democrat, a, a quite good PR strategy surrounding this. On the 1st of February, um, once the son of SPY, uh, Agus, or also called Ahaye, once he heard about what Moldoko was planning, he gave a press conference uh, in which he told the press that he had sent a letter to Jokowi informing him that his chief of staff was planning to take over Partido Democrat and he uh, requested a clarification. That became then a really big media story. And if you look at how much of the media responded to this, uh, it was very unfriendly towards the government. and. Uh, quite sympathetic towards the Yudhoyono course. Uh, it's also important uh, to remember that this was not the first time this had happened. Uh, a similar initiative to remove Yudhoyono from the chairmanship had occurred in 2015, uh, prior to the Surabaya Congress. Uh, and already back then, um, Yudo Yono had used the same method. He had gone to the press and said, I know what's happening. And he had put uh, Yudo Yono under pressure to stop uh, that initiative. In fact, what really stopped the initiative at the time was the invitation to Yudo Yono to the Congress in Surabaya 2015, uh, which then lent credibility and legality to that Congress. So the government afterwards couldn't say that that Congress that elected Yudhoyono as chairperson wasn't uh, legal. That was the trick at, at the time. And again, at that particular period of time, um, at the time, um, Ibas, the other son um, of 
uh, SPY. He was the Secretary General of the party. He had confronted uh, Jacobi openly uh, about the government attempts to push for a counter-Congress in, in Democrat. In fact, there was a new term created at the time. In Indonesian, uh, it would be Mungolgaukan, so uh, meaning we don't want to be treated like Golka was treated before us. You know, we know what the government had done with Golka, where it had intervened into uh, the internal party affairs and had flipped Golka. Uh, so the verb that was created from that uh, was Mungolgaukan, so flipping a party to become a government party. Right? And so this was the term that Yudhoyono's son used in the conversation with Jacobi, and Jacobi eventually relented. He went to uh, Surabaya, opened the Congress headed by uh, SPY, and provided legal uh, protection for it with, with that. So that's the, the first thing. There was a quite good PR strategy, a, a friendly media campaign for Yudhoyono. So they played their cards very well. Second uh, reason is that even by the standards of you know counter congresses, the way they're put together, the way they're being organized, the Democrat Congress this year uh, in North Sumatra was amateurishly put together. I think everyone recognizes that much in contrast to the Golga Congresses, uh, Golga Congress in. 2015 and the Bitiga Congress at, at the time. You know, those were driven by really party professionals, also insiders in the party uh, that knew how to do these things. This one was really put together in a hurry. Everybody understood that you know the claim of the Promal Double Camp that there were 1,200 delegates was a lie. There was when they started counting, there was in fact just one. Uh, provincial chapter represented, and I think about 34 of the uh, district level uh, branches. That was it. Everybody else were, you know, sort of uh, outsiders, people who might be members of the party but didn't really hold any positions uh, in it. So when this was brought to the ministry, even Yasona couldn't uh, approve this. He said, you know, I can't sign this, uh, it's very obvious that this is uh, not the way it should be done. This, the third reason is actually, and quite a number of people misunderstood that, you know, this is not the final word on this issue. In many cases of internal party disputes, this goes to the courts, and so will uh, uh, you know, this one proceed as well. Right? So the Moldoko camp has already said they will go to the courts and from experience with Golkar and Petiga in the past, it can be stuck there for a year or more. Interestingly, in the Golkar case, Abu Rizal Bakri, who was the anti-Jacobi faction leader in Golkar, eventually won the court case, but he had been so frustrated with this entire process that he relinquished the chairmanship nevertheless. Um, and that's also part of the game here, I think, if you look at what the government actually wanted. I think they had probably a uh, sort of maximum goal and a minimum goal. The maximum goal would have been a successful takeover of Partido Democrat by Moldoko. That would have been the ideal outcome. But even a much less um, intensive 
uh, outcome, like, for instance, a court case that will drag the party through the justice system for the year to come, will cost the Yudhiyono family a lot of money, will create a lot of internal divisions within the party. I think that in itself is already a, a satisfactory outcome. Um, for uh, whoever drove this within uh, within the government. So there's all kinds of reasons why I think eventually it was decided uh, not to put a signature under the Moldoko application for recognition. Um, you know, public pressure was one of them. Again, the technicalities of it, that really the Congress was so poorly executed that it was impossible to sign off on it. And then the government also saying, well, well if we don't recognize it, maybe some corrupt judge will um, as it travels through the, through the legal system. Um, I have a question, Marcus. Um, don't you think that uh, every party actually want a slice of power, that they um, actually think that It, it would be better if they are inside rather than outside. Uh, just like PKS, for example, right now, they are outside and we can't see their, they can't do anything. Uh, it would be better that if they join the government and uh, get the size of power so they can survive. So looking from the political party's interests from their side, they actually want to join the government and then why would the government uh, coerce them to join to in, in, into a coalition so yeah there's a, a kind of contradiction here well again so we've seen the evidence here that that's not always the case right so if you look at the 2014 constellation we're coming out of the elections which Jokowi won but the Prabowo coalition has the majority in parliament so clearly The scenario at the time was to use that majority in parliament to essentially control Jacobi, extract concessions and so forth, pass laws, or at least try to pass laws against him and, and so forth. Uh, that uh, scenario fell apart by the departure of some of these parties from the Pabolo coalition through the mechanism that we just discussed. Again, At the time, Pitiga headed by Soyadama Ali and Golkar by Abu Ezar Bakri, they were determined to remain in opposition and they had said so, right? They have come together, uh, you know, Prabowo and Abu Ezar Bakri and the other parts of the opposition and they drafted a list and I think it was 125 bills they said they wanted to change. As you also remember, One of their scenarios was to abolish uh, direct elections for local government heads, which uh, succeeded, first succeeded, was then overturned by uh, by Yudhiono because he still had that presidential uh, prerogative. So there are parties who don't want to be in the executive, although they've been invited um, to join it. Now, in the case of Democrat, it's a very complicated one. Uh, I think there was a period where uh, Yudo Yono would have liked to be part of this government, right? Uh, and there were discussions about the ministerial seat for Agus, who is now the chairman of, of the party. 
But there was big opposition from Megawati and so forth, and the ministry that was offered to Haye, the, you know, Abus, uh, was just a very minor one and so forth. So the eventual decision was to remain outside of the government, also with a view towards 2024. It's always easier, in fact, for, from an electoral perspective, um, to run a campaign that criticizes the incumbent government um, if you're not part of it, right? So I think a lot of these these parties, and that's why, you know, PKS and so forth actually thinks it can do well uh, in elections because it can point to all of these uh, poor performances of the government in, in several areas, while if you're in the middle of the government, it's it's much harder. But you're absolutely right. Every party has this dilemma, right? On the one hand, participation in government gives you access to resources, money, patronage, and so forth. But it sort of ties you to, uh, to the performance of the government. If everyone is in government, then, well, there's not much... Uh, advantage that you can draw from from being there. If, however, you're one of the two remaining opposition parties, like that's the situation we have now, there's only two left. Jokowi controls 82% of the parliament seats at the moment. You know, if we count PAN as part of the coalition, uh, you know, PAN has now also a pro-Jokowi leadership. It's not part of the cabinet yet. Uh, but it's consistently voting uh, with the government at this point. So 82% of all seats in the DPR are under control of the government. That leaves only Democrat and PKS. And I think their calculation is uh, that that gives them a much better chance at the elections in uh, in 2024. And they may well be right. Yeah, one of the concerns is also very interesting that observers have um, issued about or expressed about the potential flipping of Partei Democrat from an opposition party to a pro-government party is that if that were to occur, PKS would be the only one uh, left as an opposition party. Right? So Saifur Mujani has made this point very strongly that you know if Democrat were to move from one side to the other, well, PKS as an Islamist party would in essence be Indonesia's only opposition party and would then be the only alternative for, for voters who are uh, dissatisfied with, uh, with, with Jokowi. And so he was very concerned um, about that. So it's about the shrinking of the opposition. It's about um, these massive, massive supermajorities that Jokowi has had now in Parliament, and what that means for the ability to, you know, um, to uh, exercise accountability procedures in Parliament and and so forth, um, and what it means for parties uh, to run in elections. I think we need to, you know, look at all of this through the lens of the preparations for 2024. It's not only about parties; it's about figures, it's about personalities who want to run, and certainly um, Agus or Ahaye is one of them. Speaking of personalities, I wonder whether that value of being the, the so to speak, loyal opposition is as valuable uh, as it was in the past in an era of populism when, in a sense, you can be an incumbent but still kind of run as an oppositionist, run as sort of against the establishment or the elite or however you, you know, you construct the bogeyman. 
and that's something that surely that's something we're going to see from Proboa, even though he's the incumbent defence minister. Well, I, I think you know, I think Proboa has clearly changed uh, his strategy. I don't think we will see another populist campaign by Proboa. I think the next twenty twenty four campaign will be, um, you know, a very mainstream one. Uh, one where he will highlight his ability as a team player, you know, one where he has shown as defense minister that he can function in government. Because that was, if you look at some of the surveys in 2014 and 2019, some of the reasons for why people did not vote for him was inexperience in government. Now, those people who liked his populist agenda were very uh, unconcerned about that, but a, a large section of the electorate said you know, he, he has never been a politician, he has no government experience, and therefore uh, he's not electable for us. He has understood that now. Right? It's, it's very clear that he has looked at his performance in 2014 and 2019, these radical populist campaigns, and they have not worked for him. I think he understands that the last thing he wants to do in 2024 is another repetition of an unsuccessful um, approach. So everything he's doing now seems to be designed uh, to portray exactly the opposite. That's somebody who is responsible, somebody who can be on the international stage, somebody you know, who is a team player and somebody who praises uh, the president rather than uh, viciously uh, attacking him. I mean, we remember all of these attacks from his camp in 2014 and 2019 about you know, the uh, provincial, I mean, yes, the small town mayor who was incapable of being president that was you know some of the more generous descriptions and then of course also you know descriptions as possibly the son of a Chinese father from Singapore and, and so forth but now we have Pavolo in the mainstream and I think this is how he's going to run this in 2024 most likely in coalition with with PDIP so that spot you know for an outside campaign, I think, will be uh, open to somebody else. Uh, probably Anis will take that up. You know, somebody who is not as radical as Pabobo was in 2014 and 2019, has some government experience, but yet will be seen as not part of the Jacobi elite that has ruled the country for the last uh, 10 years. And I think Ahaye, uh, August, the son of Yudhiyono, wants to have a spot somewhere in between. You know, Yudhiyono's always want to be somewhere in between, not too radical, but also not too much drawn into, into the mainstream. And that's the spot he's after at the moment, as far as I can see. The elephant in the room is this issue of a possible third Jokowi term the format of Indonesian politics dramatically changing and and a sort of another notch along the road of democratic regression. I know Made's been thinking about this issue of the um, third term and and perhaps uh, unfortunate but but increasingly common use of the term coup, which of course is resonant at the moment with what's going on in Myanmar. But Made, maybe you can say 
something about uh, this issue of the potential third term? <laughs> I'm not serious, actually. <laughs> yeah, um, that's a possibility, but it's very, very small. I don't think it will be, um, uh, it, it will be possible uh, for the third term, but, you know, uh, but looking at I'm, I'm I'm surprised that a lot of political player in Jakarta is uh, uh, start talking about that. That that's really astonished me. Um, I say that, but I don't believe in that actually. But uh, but looking at the, all of the uh, posters and political strategies, start talking about that. That that's really uh, send uh, some signals. Uh, I don't know. You have any thought about that, Marcus? Yeah, I think we often sort of make this mistake of believing that you know, Indonesian political leaders or political leaders in general have a plan. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, Jokowi, for instance, when he was recruiting his vice presidential candidate for 2019, he had no plan whatsoever. Right? So, and it really uh, played out in the last few minutes, and then it wasn't the person that he actually wanted to have at, at the time. So, and Yudhoyono as well, right? So we always thought in the 10 years that he ruled, who would he groom as a successor? How would he do it? And it turned out he had no successor and he had no plan uh, for uh, sort of a smooth uh, transition. He also, remember, uh, played with the idea of the third term. There were all of these trial balloons uh, that were sent out and shot down pretty quickly, so he then did not proceed with that. There were also this, was also this idea about Ibuani running and so forth. There were all kinds of ways that he tried out, but none of it worked. So, uh, you know, these plans fell apart. So I don't actually believe that Jacobi has a very clear plan of how he wants to proceed after 2024. Um, and so coming back to the Democrat scenario, if you look at you know, what their maximum goal probably was, because the question would have been, if you already control without Partido Democrat, 82% of parliamentary seats, why would you need another 9% on top of that to get you to 91? Well, one of the answers, possible answers would have been that this would make it much easier than to push for constitutional amendments uh, in the NPR. So uh, this is where it needs to be decided because, as you know, you know the NPR does not only consist of parliamentary members, they're also the senators and they're much more difficult to control. So the closer you get to 100% control of the parliament, the more likely it is that you can control whatever constitutional amendments are uh, on the table. So, But that was the maximum goal, right? So and that did not happen so far. And so at the moment, the sort of minimum goal is playing out and that is damaging uh, part of the Democrat to an extent uh, that undermines Ahaye's credibility as a candidate as we move towards 2024. Uh, so the third term, I think, is not entirely off the table, but like Mari, I think it's it's unlikely. It's unlikely because there are so many people within the current Jacobi coalition who actually have an interest beyond that. Uh, of course, Pabowo would be the, the first one 
to leave the Jacobi coalition if a third term was on the table because he still wants that last shot at the presidency in, in, in 2024. And other Golkar and so forth, they also they want something fresh. They now want to have a shot at the presidency as well. So I don't think this would be very easy um, to, to bring through, um, but I wouldn't rule it out uh, entirely uh, either. Yeah, there's also, of course, uh, and this has been extensively discussed over the last few years as well, still the possibility of returning the presidential election to the NPR. Right? Uh, so I don't, I don't trust assurances from the NPR leadership that these kinds of issues are not on the table. I think the, 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 the strategy is very clearly, they say the only thing we want to change the constitution about is the reintroduction of the broad policy guidelines, right? So Gauss, Gauss, Bizarre, uh, MPR, which would limit the ability of the president to determine policy, which is bad enough. But they say that's the only thing we want. But once you actually open the constitution, you can just imagine that all kinds of other things uh, will be tried to be slipped into that uh, with or without knowledge and prior knowledge of, of, of the public. So that's still, I think, a, a, a place to watch. But yeah, I agree that the third term is an unlikely proposition. What's striking and maybe confusing to some people is that not many years ago, around at least as late as 2015, if I remember correctly, we were still talking about Jokowi in terms of his being a rather weak leader and remember when he came into office, a major uh, plank of the campaign against him was that he was a puppet and he was controlled by former President Megawati and so on. And so much was written about how he was too weak to govern effectively and so on and would be at the mercy of outside forces. And here we are a few years later talking about a potential third term um, with all the caveats uh, you've just mentioned notwithstanding, but also, you know, the co this coercive power sharing uh, operation. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to reconcile those two perspectives on, on the man, on the president. Yes, and uh, there are, you know, continuing signs of weakness and at the same time continuing signs of strength. And I think they actually belong together because Jokowi is masterful in deciding which battles to pick. Right? And I've just mentioned the example of his vice presidential selection, where if you read this from afar, it's a major defeat for him, right? So the parties got together and told him that they didn't want the candidate that Jokowi eventually had settled on and that he should choose somebody else. And he did because it wasn't important enough for him to start a fight about. Uh, but then, you know, if you look at his control of the legislative agenda at the moment, it's pretty extraordinary. Uh, the omnibus bill, so the bill that was essentially, you know, the biggest deregulation 
program of the economy for the last 20 years was pushed through without any internal dissent in that large uh, 80% coalition. It's remarkable. And that includes PDIP, the Sopranoist Party, the Protectionist Party, which had openly rejected the bill very early on. And then when it came to the vote, nobody voted um, against it. And that's also quite different from the Udayono coalition. I remember Udayono struggled quite significantly to keep his coalition together. PKS in particular was voting against him several times in his second term, uh, mostly related to the fuel subsidies. So in terms of the legislative control, I think it's quite unprecedented for both uh, the presidents to have such uh, massive control. But again, there are other areas where he is um, you know, sort of surrendering control to others, where he says to the parties, okay, you don't like my candidate, well, then who's yours? Okay, it's not bad. I mean, I can live with that person. Or in the area of, of military control. I don't think Jokowi cares really much about controlling the details of military organization, which is why he's so happy for Pogoa to take care of, of that. You know, he just wants to make sure that overall the military is loyal for him and will not overthrow him. But uh, other than that, he's focusing on the things that are important uh, to him. And in those areas, he has established uh, massive control. So, so I think it's a nuanced picture. Yeah? So in some areas, he is indeed probably the strongest president uh, among the, the post-Sahato uh, heads of government. But in other areas, he has uh, almost without resistance relinquished authority. Yeah, there's something deeply counterintuitive about that, that, in, that he might be the strongest of in the post-Sahato era, yet he presents very effectively this image of of simplicity, of artlessness, of guilelessness. Maybe Mare can say something about how the campaign is playing out on the Indonesian and Indonesian social media, and I don't know the kind of the discourse to use that term now. Because what I'm seeing on my feeds, at least, is that Jokowi's already running for 2024 and he's he's got these really curiously almost choreographed kind of populist encounters where he's caught on video crying for the victims of the floods in um in the Sunda Islands is the most recent one or another one he was shown on video borrowing uh someone's bathroom for a bathroom break and these kind of folksy um populist memes that have been put out there seem to be, from what I can tell, effective. And he gives him this kind of Teflon character in the Indonesian uh, discourse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, but at the same time, you have to remember that he is also the the, the president who has uh, really served the elites. You give everything, as Marcus just said, also that he gave uh, the, the, the regulation. As a, this is the biggest, I think it's just even more radical than the regulation in the uh, early 90s that Suarco had. So, uh, in terms of also the recentralization of the government, uh, if you look at Undang-Undang uh, Minerba, the mineral and, and coal, I think that's uh, also all of the procedural for 
uh, issuing permit, for example, all goes to the national level right now. So, um, yeah, it's very, really good that playing the image to the folk, to the little people, but at the same time, he's uh, really, really serving the interests of the elites. You have a comment on that, uh, Marcus? Yeah, I mean, his position on you know, economic uh, deregulation is a very interesting one because I don't think he really understands the conceptual implications of that. Right? So uh, he, for instance, in the middle of campaigning for the omnibus bill, he was still getting up and gave interviews uh, about the bad impacts of imports, right, where there's a large section in the omnibus bill that would automatically increase imports of agricultural goods, right? So uh, this has always been sort of his problem. He's not, a, I mean, I'm not telling you anything new. He is not a conceptual thinker. He doesn't have an idea about, you know, deregulation, neoliberal reforms being contradictory to uh, protectionism. I think he thinks he can sort of build a, a specific Jokowi approach out of both paradigms. And it's, I don't see that, that happening, right? So uh, clearly, you know, after he came to power, and let's remember 2014, PDIP had a massively protectionist campaign. Remember all of the, you know, these images of uh, rice, you know, where there were all kinds of foreign flags on fruits and so forth in order to show the electorate, you know, we don't want all of these imports. So a lot of what Jacobi did afterwards was highly protectionist. So now we see him uh, moving away from that with the same passion that he defended the previous approach about. And you know, it doesn't seem to me, at least, that he's only doing that uh, because he's controlled by, by the elites, right? Because the elites are also not united. Of course, there's a strong segment of the elite, which is highly protectionist. You know, if you are uh, sort of a, a classic... Uh, natural resource uh, extractor and you live off licenses from that, now you don't really gain from deregulation. You would want protectionism to, uh, to, to continue. But then there are others in the market, so the bigger conglomerates, especially the ethnic Chinese who are more in the trade segment of the business, who would benefit from deregulation, right? But so he, I think he's just trying to put this all together eclectically without understanding much about the impacts. And so he's now traveling sort of the world, at least virtually, right? And so I've seen him opening a German fair in Hannover just a few days ago, where he again, you know, uh, tried to sell the omnibus bill as this big breakthrough. But at the moment, we don't actually know whether any of these measures will will work. We will only know in two or three years' time once the COVID crisis is over and we have a normalization of the economy and, and can sort of distinguish what the impact of COVID was and what the impact of the omnibus bill, omnibus bill was. So so it's a it's a very mixed bag with him. Uh, but again at the I think at the heart of all of these problems is his inability to think 
conceptually. What about the question of religion? Because in 2019, we found out that the Indonesian electorate was more polarised along religious lines between conservatives on the one hand and, and pluralists on the other, pluralists and, and other religious minorities who uh, voted strongly for Jokowi. You've written using a very curious term, I think you call it non-democratic pluralism. Perhaps you could explain what you mean by that term and uh, where you think Indonesia is at the moment in terms of that polarisation uh, that we saw in 2019. Yes, yeah, so non-democratic pluralism uh, is a concept that you know, I've developed with Ed Espinal. What we mean by that is that in the last decade or so, um, citizens, activists as well, who were and remain highly concerned about Indonesia's continued character as a religiously pluralist society have shifted towards a more non-democratic uh, proposition without realizing actually that they do. Right? So in the past, these people who were religiously pluralist would be at the same time also be quite liberal and pro-democratic. I think that has now split. There are quite a number of activists now who are religiously pluralist but no longer liberal or pro-democratic. Now, from their perspective, this is all because they think that the biggest threat to Indonesia is not democratic decline but Islamist uh, hunger for power and that therefore rejecting that Islamist campaign requires non-democratic measures as well. So you can easily see that, for instance, at the question of whether the government should be allowed to, without court proceedings, to ban uh, social organizations, which the government now has used uh, twice in order to ban Hati in um, 2017 and then last year uh, to ban uh, to ban FPE. Um, so in both cases, we have seen strong support for that decision from religious pluralists who in the past would have been very skeptical towards a government um, authority to ban organizations. But now they believe it actually is necessary in order to save Indonesia from, from the Islamists. So, so that's what we mean by non-democratic pluralism. So these are activists, this is an electorate that in fact um, no longer believes that religious pluralism has to go hand in hand with the provision of liberal rights, but that now religious pluralism takes precedence over any other um, concerns. Now, I think we've now seen, if you talk about the polarization and who that polarization represents, there's now a confusion, of course, in the electoral market because, I mean, I mentioned that earlier, I think Prabowo has left that position as representing sort of the pro-Islamist position. He did so in 2014 and 2019, but he no longer wants to do that in 2024 because it didn't work for him twice. He failed. And so the irony for 
for Prabowo has been that he lost the elections twice because of the religious minorities, right? So they both, in both elections, voted heavily against him and had only Muslims voted in both of these elections, he would have won. Uh, so I think this is one of these real, realizations he has come to, uh, that he can't just do that a third time. Yeah? Do the same trick, same campaign, same alliance, it just will not work. And so he has broken quite uh, publicly and visibly with the Islamists. They have broken with him, have expressed their disappointment with him, and he's quite happy about that because that's exactly what he wants in order to position himself uh, as the representative, ironically, of the other side in, in 2024. Right? So if, like many of us, I think, believe there is a coalition between Prabowo and PDRP, a potential ticket between him, Prabowo, and Megawati's daughter, Puhan, then you will see Prabowo, the pluralist candidate, running in 2024. And the mantle of the other side might go to somebody um, like Anis. So there's been, I think, quite a bit of misunderstanding in the analysis of Prabowo's entering of the government, um, as if that meant that the polarization was gone. Of course, it's not gone. You know, this polarization is still there, but the personnel that is representing this polarization, I think, uh, is changing and will be changing further as we move to 2024. Well, what's confusing is that there's two trends in Indonesian politics that seem to be in tension. One is this apparently deepening polarization, but the other one is this centripetal force of, of um, power sharing and, and what could be called oligarchy, um, bringing everyone together under, under the control of, in this, at the moment, Jokowi. Yeah, but they are they are playing out in different arenas, right? And always have. So if you look at the Indonesian party system, it's quite visible now that you know a lot of Indonesians no longer feel represented by it, right? So we have this measure in political science, it's party identity, where we ask people, do you feel uh, close to any of the political parties? Uh, and uh, the answer now is is devastating from Indonesians. It's about 11%. It used to be 80%. It then dropped to about 50% as we moved towards direct presidential elections in 2004. But now it's down to 10%. It's one of the lowest uh, in, in the world, right? So um, the, the, this... Of elite politics, of what's happening in parliament, what's happening in the political parties, what's happening in the other political institution has, I think, for a long time now been detached from what's happening on, on the grassroots. Because if you look at the surveys there, the kinds of surveys I have conducted with Bohanuddin Mohtad in the last few years about religious intolerance, you know, how Indonesians view. Um, non or Indonesian Muslims view non-Muslims. None of that has really moderated at all since the escalation of the Ahok crisis in uh, 2016-17. So that polarization on the ground um, is still in place, but the 
people and parties and political vehicles that channel that polarization, they're currently changing. And that's where you see the so, confusion, where you know, Islam is previously looked at Prabowo um, as the representative of their political aspirations. They will have to um, get used to somebody else doing that and Prabowo representing the other side. So it's still a very ripe environment for a populist insurgent that perhaps comes in campaigning on on a, on a more conservative religious agenda, but maybe on an anti-authoritarianism agenda, even anti-Kazoliman, on a maybe an anti-corruption agenda, and and runs a populist campaign that exploits people's weak ties to these institutions that you mentioned. Yeah, and the one person who could run this campaign. Incredibly, is currently in prison, right? And this is Pabi um, Rizik, uh, who returned from exile uh, in late 2020, uh, received a much stronger welcome than the government uh, had thought he would, because they thought, you know, these three years in exile would have undermined his followership, but it hadn't, and that's why they resorted, the government resorted to such very blunt. Uh, you know, legal misuse of you know, the available instruments that, that it had, because obviously um, Habib Rizik is at the moment in prison for things that many other Indonesians would have done at the same time, including you know, organizing weddings and being at big events and, and so forth. So it's a very selective uh, use of, of the law, to say the least, and very clearly the government believed that, you know, if you look at who among all the various leaders uh, was most likely to be a problem for them, it would have been it would have been Habib Rizik. And it seems to be working. It seems to be working, yeah, it seems to be working with him uh, because he's terrified of being in prison, you know, um, uh, he didn't like his stay in prison when it was started in 2009. You know, he had health problems there, so he clearly wants to cut some deals to get out. Um, and yes, you know, the, the kind of, and we haven't talked about that, so the way the government is regulating social media, the way it is uh, scrutinizing social media, the police setting up this new... Uh, cyber police that tells people before they're getting arrested that you know they've, they've posted something. Sliding into people's DMs, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, giving warnings on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's all part of, of, of this attempt to control you know, who might emerge in, in 2024. Right, right. Do you think that PKS will have a greater prospect for 2024? Because you know, he they are the only one right now outside the government, and but they are doing nothing practically. Basically, the people hear, don't hear about them much, and uh, they keep quiet in the parliament. Uh, probably they say something, but you know they don't have any megaphone like like before. Uh, they are not a big player in social media. Also, I don't know what's going on with this uh, por- political party. Yeah, uh, you have any uh, thought about about this political party, which I admired them uh, before. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, they actually would have sort of enjoyed the fact that you know, Partai Demokrat is going through a period of weakness and internal uh, disputes and so forth, because that would have left them. 
uh, effectively as the only opposition party. And that's always a good position to be in. That's agreed. And to be fair, uh, PKS played, in my view, uh, quite a good role in holding the government to account over the COVID crisis. And as far as I can see, it was the only one that actually did that. Uh, so a lot of the commentary that came from PKS people was very reasonable. I'd listened to the science, you know, it was very critical of Jacobi's handling initially of, of the COVID-19 campaign. Um, and so they, they, they did their job there. And as far as I can see, I mean, the polling at the moment is very fragmented and so forth, but they're not doing particularly poorly um, in, in the polling at, at the moment. Their big game, of course, will come when it uh, when we approach the selection of presidential candidates. And they have already, so when PKS people are now talking about potential candidates, they always mention the name Anis. If they can attach themselves to Anis as one of the leading contenders for 2024, I think they will be fine. I think they will attract some additional votes from those people who are disappointed with Pabowo will no longer vote for Garindra because he joined the government, but will be looking for a new political party in 2024. So actually, I'm not so concerned about them. I mean, if you look at some of the polling results, there are other parties that seem to be doing particularly uh, poorly, pun, for instance, and so forth, uh, that seem to be on the verge of uh, disappearing. So, so I'm not that concerned. They are, of course, as you know, also undergoing a period of internal splits. So there's one section of PKS has split off and is creating a new party. That might hurt them a little bit, but I think they would sort of retain their normal electorate of urban modernist voters uh, that really at the moment in the political spectrum can't go anywhere else. Um, uh, probably the last for me, um, just for the people who are outside political science, mm. um, if you can grade, who is the strongest candidate uh, right now for 2024? Uh, number one, number two, number three, something like that, if you could. Just for now. It's a very hard question, partly because <laughs> we don't know who is going to run, right? As you know, uh, so it's not only about being popular in the polls, but you also need to find a political vehicle. Uh, so from those people who are at the moment very popular in the polls, but also have a very high prospect of being nominated, Prabowo stands out. And there's no doubt about that, right? So if you look at some of the others, um, Ganjar Pranovo, the governor of uh, central Java, um, or Ritwan Kamil, the governor of West Java, in their cases, it's highly questionable whether they will find a political party to nominate them in, in the first place. Anis is the other big wild card here. So if I had to put my money at the moment, again, it's very early in the game, my money would be on a matchup between Babo Puan versus Anis Ahaye. That would be my guess uh, at the moment. 
and you know, then it's a, anyone's guess. I, I, I wouldn't be able to call that. I think it would be very close. Well, at the risk of asking you to go out on another limb, can I ask a, perhaps a summary question to wrap up the conversation? What do you think might be, if we can say something at this relatively early stage, Jokowi's legacy, the, the mark he leaves on the Indonesian presidency? I know you're doing longer, deeper work on the Indonesian presidency as an institution. There's maybe a couple of years-ish left of Jokowi's second term. Do you think there's anything we can say at this stage about what his legacy will be? Yeah, it's quite interesting. I mean, if we sort of abstract from some of the things that we talked about earlier, sort of the, the uh, differences in how they are recruiting parties to their coalitions, for instance, if you abstract from that, um, the way they govern Yuliono uh, and uh, Jokowi governed isn't actually all that much different, right? So the size of their coalitions were, were pretty similar. There was a lot of give and take between the various institutions, the various actors. Uh, I have described, I'm writing a book at the moment uh, about the Indonesian presidency. And if you assess the powers that an Indonesian president has against the powers of the members of his coalition, it is largely an equilibrium, right, between um, those two two actors and very little differences between Yudhiyono and Jokowi. Now, very specifically in terms of what Jokowi will be remembered for, I think it's the very uh, things that he is remembered for now, a very strong focus on development, on infrastructure, on potentially moving the capital if he you know, really succeeds with that. He seems to be determined to go ahead with that. Um, somebody who really prioritized um, you know, development, the economy over everything else, including public health and democracy. Uh, so I think that will be largely uh, the legacy, and that will be a legacy. He wouldn't be bothered at all if somebody told him now, you focus so heavily on the economy that you ignored democratic niceties and you ignored you know, public health um, considerations during the pandemic. I think he would actually not uh, be very concerned with that assessment. He would probably like it. And the pandemic just fades into the distance because no one wants to remember that trauma anyway. Well, I mean, we'll, we'll have to see. I mean, so at the moment, for all kinds of reasons, I think that sort of the first wave seems to be over. That was for a long time the problem with Indonesia up until about February, that it actually never had a second wave. It was still the first wave. The cases were increasing. Now we've seen the numbers going down a little, uh, and that could just be the end of the first wave. If other countries are, you know, any sort of example for what's likely going to happen, you know, every country had a second wave. I think Indonesia has no reason to sort of sit back and say, now we've made it. Uh, in many cases, we see it in India now, uh, Brazil, of course, and other countries that are similarly structured to Indonesia. Uh, they've been hit very hard. 